The Utmost Island, Chapter 17 Unlike the men on the ship, Odin did not think it undignified to consult women on matters of life and death. His handful of storm-tossed followers must be given a home, so the Allfather turned to where he would get the best advice. He summoned the oldest and wisest of his wives. She was an ancient goddess named Urda, or Urtha, or as she was affectionately called by people, Mother Earth. He had long since deserted her for younger mates, but she did not reproach him, merely waiting patiently to learn what he wanted, prepared as ever to forgive him and grant it. Have you no place upon your vast bosom, he asked her, where my children may rest their heads? If not in the known world, then let it be in the unknown world. There was indeed such a refuge, she told him. But just as there were things so small they could scarcely be seen, this was so huge it could scarcely be imagined. It was boundless, endless, a great double continent, half of all the world, 3,000 miles across and stretching from above the northern lights to a great frozen sea south of the south. It was spacious enough, she said, to shelter every man in the world, and each could bring all his wives and all his concubines, and they in turn could bring their lovers if they had them, and would find places to conceal them. And all of them together could bring all their children to start new lineages with, and even then there would be so much room left that the same thing could be done again by other men and women, from the moon perhaps, or from wherever else people might be seeking shelter, and again, and yet again, forever. All comforts were in it, Erda said, that make life pleasant or make people want to live. It held food of every kind, fertile ground to grow more, sweet water to sprinkle it with or to drink, salt water to sail to and from it, woods, climate to please every liking, whether sleepy or pleasant or breaking, hills, coasts, harbors, gold, silver, iron, copper, everything hard and soft and in between, lakes, brooks, rivers, plains, peaks, grass, granite, vast distances, nearby nooks, skies that were blue by day and starry by night. Beauty, health, happiness, strength and wonder, and all in such prodigious, fabulous, unheard of, unbelievable, unreasoning abundance, that the human race could be rid of all its hardships there, once and for all time, with hardly the effort of setting its mind to it. This was no undiscovered world, oddly enough, that Erda was describing to her husband. It had been discovered many times, though neglected and forgotten as many. It was known to the ancients as a paradise that had somehow been lost, and Plato, Aristotle, and Seneca mentioned it as the wonderful country hidden in the Western Ocean. It bore many names which expressed the deathless longing with which it was remembered. 
some of which were from time to time wistfully bestowed on other places, and among these were Atlantis, Mu, the Fortunate Isles, the Lost Island of the Seven Cities. And there were men and women living there, many tribes of them, handsome, copper-colored people, with gaily feathered dress. Language, religion, customs, traditions, and pleasures, who had long since discovered the beauty and marvel of the place and made up tales about it, and who had their own wonderful names for it, according to the part in which they dwelt. It would be as wrong to call it undiscovered, because no European had found it, as to call Europe undiscovered because none of the copper-colored men had been there. As a matter of fact, there were legends that Europeans had been there, ever since stories of the lost continent first were told. There had been an Irish monk named Brendan, renamed Saint Brendan for what he did, of the Christian Coldy sect, who is said to have miraculously crossed the ocean in a coracle about the year 700, landed on those mighty shores, preached to copper-colored people, and lived to return and tell about it. And the Aztecs worshipped an idol with a fair complexion and a golden beard. It represented a divinity who long ago had come from across the sea, had ruled them for a time and then departed, promising no return. And there was a yellow man from Cathay named Lo Fen, who reached the western side in a funny little square ship in the funny little year 400. And long before any of these, the copper-colored people themselves discovered the land, coming from no one knows where, but certainly from somewhere. Where did those of the north get their high cheekbones that look so Chinese? Where did those of the south get their pyramids that look so Egyptian? What did that tribe in the Andes get their skin that looks so white? Wherever they got these things, and wherever they came from on their voyages of discovery, there were other people living there when they landed who had discovered it earlier still. Imaginative, building people who made giant mounds in the exact shape of bears and snakes. Countless times it had been discovered by different kinds of people from different kinds of places, in the names of their different gods, and they had discovered different things about the land, different ways of enjoying it, or ignoring it, or forgetting it. It may be that some were only laughed at when they went back home and said they'd found it, but at least they would have kept alive the legend of the lost continent, to inspire other adventures yet unborn. Erda had never tired of telling the secret to whatever ears would listen, hoping that the rest of the world would taste its delights. And now in the portentous year 1000, she was telling it again to Odin, so that it might be newly discovered by the Sea King, Red Eric's son, Leif. Well, there it was when the fog had cleared away, and all his unsound reasons were correct. It lay steerboard, about ten miles off, and they were drifting along parallel to it not head-on, all just as he'd said. There were no forests visible at this distance, of pine or any other tree. Nothing as far as they could make out but snow and glaciers. Nor did the aspect change when they put in towards shore for a better look. But he had found land, 
with or without Pine, and that excused any discrepancy. The crew were ready to deny that he had mentioned a pine forest, so completely were they on his side now. At most, they claimed that if he had said it, then he must have drifted past the forest in the night. It was impossible for him to be wrong now. They would have believed any statement of his, obeyed any order. Had he wished, he could have had the bonder sacrificed to Odin. Had he wished, and had it been possible, he could even have had Odin sacrificed. He could have had anything he wanted. His only wish, however, was to bring their tired bodies into port, and he did not know whether to land here or seek further. Neither he nor the crew liked the look of this particular spot, which was as glacier-covered as Greenland, but lacked even Greenland's black granite. They longed for just a patch of green to indicate that something might grow, and were prepared for any amount of back-breaking tillage. They were seamen, these Vikings, because they had to be, but in their hearts they were sailing farmers looking for farmland. The choice was not theirs. It was Thor's. His image was released from the cords which secured it and carried it to the prow, to look at the land and decide for them as it had been for Ingolf. It was soon made clear that Thor did not care to land there any more than the Icelanders did, for when they dropped him overboard he made no move to drift ashore, but remained floating close behind the ship. That was all the hint they needed. They hauled him aboard, glad that he agreed with them, and headed south, keeping the land always in view. Presently, the current seized them again, and they had little to do but watch the shore and see whether its character was changing. It remained the same all through the day. Something else did change, however, and it was a welcome novelty. As night came on, there was much less fog than there had been, scarcely any at all. After a while, it cleared away altogether so that they saw the stars for the first time in many nights. This encouraged them, making them feel that they must be nearing a drier, less frozen part of the earth. They were able to sleep through the dark instead of having to row. There was a pleasant sense that all was well, from this safe resumption of habit. When morning came, they were greatly comforted to see the land still with them. The contour was somewhat different from that of the day before. There were hills now, still snow-covered, but when they rode nearer for closer inspection, it was seen that there were trees as well as snow on the hills. This was much more to their liking, and when they once more dropped Thor overboard, they hoped he would agree with them. But he proved hard to please and floated as before alongside the ship. A number of men were in favor of disregarding his wishes and going ashore to spite him, but the Sea King would not hear of it. He had the idol hauled aboard and gave orders to continue south along the coast. They must obey the wishes of the gods, he admonished them, and besides, they knew where this place was and could always return to it if they found nothing better. South they went again keeping the snowy hills and trees in sight until night overtook them once more. 
This time there was no fog at all, so that they were able to discern the outline of the land against the starry sky until their eyes grew tired and they fell asleep. The following morning brought a great disappointment. When they awoke, there was no land in sight of any kind. Immediately, their spirits fell and they began to worry once more about the edge of the world and whether they were near it. They wanted to turn back to the wooded, snowy hills they'd seen yesterday. But the Sea King decided otherwise. There was a chance, he reasoned, that the land had not ended, but had curved away from them. It could not have curved to eastward or they would have run into it. If it curved at all, it was worth trying to find again, so he ordered the ship be put about westward. Late in the afternoon, he was again proven right. Land lay due west of them. It was low-lying ground this time, which was one reason why it hid so easily behind the horizon. When they had come near enough, they saw that it had a beach of white sand, which gleamed even in the twilight. There were many inlets, too, while some distance further inland, a thick growth of trees bespoke fertile soil. The belt of snow seemed to have been left far behind. They saw none. Good luck had done ever so much more for them than they'd hoped. As for Thor, if he opposed their wishes now, he would find it hard to keep their obedience. They dropped him dutifully over the side and waited for his response as he bobbed up and down. But their minds were made up regardless of what he might say. One or two of them, however, paid him the compliment of praying silently that he would agree with them. To their immense satisfaction, he did. The tide was moving in toward shore, and he let it bear him straight into one of the inlets. The ship followed where he floated through that safe, pleasant harbor flanked by clean-looking sand spits. As they sailed deeper into the land, life suddenly became very different for the Sea King, more so than for any of them. He'd kept his word. I will take command and bring you safe to port, he had said. Now it was done. Now he was released. No more need to banish his son from his thoughts. Eric, Eric, I can think now of how to save you. Your father, Eric, is coming for you. Patience, my son, for a very little while. He'd been looking forward to saying these words, had been changing them this way and that for greater satisfaction against the moment when they could be said, but they did not give him the expected relief and exaltation. Another thought, strange and uninvited, but fully as strong as his wish to rescue his son, intruded itself and jealously claimed part of his interest. We have little eyes in the back of our necks, with which we see the unseen, and when they are open, we have what we call a creepy feeling. He was conscious of it at that instant. Entirely without reason or cause, he knew that something or somebody was watching him from shore. It must be from shore, because everyone on the ship was looking away. The channel was narrow here, so the unseen watcher, if such it was, must be near enough to be seen. 
Yet the best effort of a pair of seamen's eyes failed to make out anything that would account for the impression. This sensation of being watched never left him throughout all the time that they were there to spend on this western edge of the world. He remembered later that this was the first time he had felt it. In view of their misadventure with the Skraelings, it seemed wise to wait for daylight before stepping ashore. He decided they would come to anchor where they were for the night. They lifted Thor out of the water with renewed respect for his judgment, gratefully placed food before him, then prepared to celebrate the successful ending of their quest. A feast was in order. Since it was in the place which was to be their home, it must be a formal feast at which they could be conscious of observing an event. The women broached the best of their provisions and cooked worthily. The ship became a guest hall. Where the Sea King sat at the helm was the high seat, and he was their hero, whom they had met to honor. They gave him a ringing cheer, such as he'd never heard since the six bonders acclaimed him their Sea King in the wood near Thor's temple. It brought him back by its very loudness to what was going on about him. Praise is handsome payment. He had looked forward to it as the best part of his reward. But his son was to have been beside him when that great cheer was given, his little heart brimming with the triumph which he felt he had somehow helped to gain, without Eric. Two phrases that were hostile to each other fought for the attention of his inner ear. He heard and accepted both. They were, it cannot be, and it is. His companions were unaware of his feelings. It requires great effort to remember another man's grief, and their hardiness, given without stint, was a credit to them, since they, too, found something missing that they loved. They did not say out loud what it was. They could have, were it not that they were unwilling to think about it clearly, lest they make themselves too sad. They knew an artful way of tricking themselves into expressing what they shied away from, but what they would feel better for stating. They called upon one of their number, a man with a fine, stirring voice, to make up a song. The man understood what kind of song they meant. His companion saw him finger his axe and look toward the wood which was fading into night. You might have said he was going to sing about the axe and the wood and how the two together would make a temple or a house. But instead of being bold and vigorous, the song was sentimental. That really surprised no one. All silently accepted it as what they had in mind. It told them they were homesick. The phrase, in Iceland, recurred regularly as a sort of refrain. Soon, they were all waiting for it and murmuring it with the singer whenever it came around. I felled the trees in an Iceland wood and built my home where the trees had stood, in Iceland. Its beams were cedar, its roof was pine, its floor was birch, and it was all mine, in Iceland. I owned it all, and it owned me too. We both were made out of things that grew, in Iceland. And now I'll build on a distant shore the self-same house that I built before 
in Iceland, with beams of cedar and roof of pine and floor of birch like that house of mine in Iceland. I'll live in it when it is all done and dream that I live in that other one in Iceland. After that, they looked at one another, saw that all felt alike, and were on that account a little less ashamed. With a joint impulse, they flung their moodiness away, singing jollier songs, and many of them. At last, realizing that an exacting day of exploration awaited them, they posted guards at both rails of the ship and tried to sleep. But the cries of strange birds that were also nesting for the night kept them long awake, reminding them in a roundabout way of Iceland, where the birds had cries that they knew, and where sleep therefore came easier and felt sweeter. 